Welcome to Amped Up. This is your host, Ryan Knight, and our guest today is Carlos Cardona. Carlos is the chairman of Laconia Democrats. He's the youngest person ever elected in New Hampshire, and now he is running for state representative in New Hampshire's third district. Carlos, welcome to Amped Up. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for having me. I look forward to this conversation with you guys. Me too. Um, since this is your first time on the show, why don't you start off by just giving us a little bit about your background and, and why you're running for office? Uh, well, I am the chairman of the Laconia City Democrats. Um, I'm also the uh, president or chairman of the New Hampshire Progressive Coalition, which it was founded this year, inspired by the Bernie Sanders movement here in New Hampshire. Um, I moved here from Puerto Rico. I was born and raised in Aguadilla, Puerto Rico. And um, I look forward to sharing more about my story. I guess where we could start is how I, when I moved to mainland, becoming coming out of the closet at the age of 15 and immediately right after becoming homeless um, because of family situations, um, not being very uh, accepting of who I am. Um, Fast forward, things have changed a lot dramatically. My mom and I have a great relationship now, but at the time it wasn't something that I was fortunate to have. Um, and then I moved to the state of New Hampshire, was a homeless teen here, and I was inspired by a current U.S. Senator, Senator Jean Shaheen, who was having a home uh, a house party. And she heard my story during a question and answer. I asked her a few questions about homelessness and how she felt. And she ended up her conversation with saying, well, you should run for office and change it. And I did just that. So at the age of 17, I started prepping for a campaign as a writing candidate. Everybody thought that I was crazy. Um, I thought I was crazy. <laughs> um, but I, I, was, I felt inspired because at the time, New Hampshire had one of the highest rates of homeless, youth homelessness in the country. And for a state so small and so beautiful, I thought, this is just crazy that this is happening here. So I wanted to do something about it. So I did. I ran for office and fast forward one by 46 votes, which that is a very close margin. But I kept working my community to prove that I needed to be the one representing our district. Then after that, I left politics for personal reasons and um, became an AmeriCorps for three years and started serving my community that way. So um, then I was the uh, LGBTQ LGBTQ co-chair for Obama in 2008. He was my endorsed candidate. And then in 2016, I was a delegate, a state delegate for Hillary Clinton. And then most recently, a surrogate for Senator Bernie Sanders. That sounds exactly like uh, my journey in politics from Obama to Hillary to Bernie. Uh, how incredible. I, I'm so moved by uh, your honesty and also your your courage to go from being homeless, uh, you know, and, and dealing with, you know, I also, you know, my family was not accepting to me either. I'm from a Catholic family. And, you know, it w- there was about a six year period where, you know, I didn't really have a good relationship with them because they had a hard time accepting me uh, for being gay. So I can so relate with that. But to see you go through that struggle so early, but then to take that and to get right into action and to help your community, like that is just extraordinary. I'm so moved by that. Um, do you yeah, want- I think it speaks to the fact that I'm Puerto Rican. I mean, our culture, Puerto Rico is very much different than the rest of the 50 upper states, as I call them. Um, 
we're taught from a very young age that no matter what group in society you're born into, that you can always do better and you should always fight for what you want. So mm. um, that was always instilled by my grandfather who had ran for office, never won office, um, but he just never stopped. He showed me that you just keep going. It doesn't matter because you might not win the battle, but at the end of the day, you might make a difference in somebody's life. Um, and that matters. And I, I feel that even if I sometimes don't win elections, um, I still have an impact on people. There's still people that are re reading and seeing what I'm doing. And hopefully that sparks something in them to do the same, to, you know, carry the torch from whenever I'm done in politics, you know, or from here on. Um, you know, it's great. So, and I'm, and I'm seeing that, you know, the New Hampshire Progressive Coalition is a perfect example of that. It started off as an idea after I challenged the most powerful politician in the state of New Hampshire, uh, Bill Shaheen, who happens to be Senator Gene Shaheen's husband. Um, he holds a lot of power here politically and, uh, he holds a lot of politically political favors in the DNC. And so when I challenged him, um, I realized progressives didn't have a home, a network, a coalition, mm. a place that they can connect and be themselves and discuss policies and not feel rejected, a place where if you need to vent, you could do it. And so we formed this coalition because I realized after running, I'm like, oh, my God, I've been running all these years and now I know why I'm exhausted. I have no circle to back me up, to support me, to show me that what I'm doing is exactly what they're thinking about. And so um, you know, we can talk more about this uh, later on, but that's kind of how everything has been shaping up to be. And I'm so excited because there are so many now progressives in the state. They're like, oh, my God, I don't feel alone anymore. Um, this is exactly what I've been thinking and what I've been feeling. And now they're feeling empowered. And we have so many candidates that have won their primaries that are now going into the general election. So I'm just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and there's so much more to progressives in the state of New Hampshire, a place that people oftentimes only associate with first in the nation primary and don't realize how much change there's happening here that will affect the rest of the country. Well, I also think like that that's how this progressive movement uh, is growing is is and how we're building this coalition by empowering others. I think you hit on a big point because. It's hard when, you know, the DNC has so much power and the RNC has so much power and, you know, the seven billionaires own all of our major news networks, you know, and so the information that people are receiving tends to favor the more establishment candidates. And so sometimes, you know, and in, in what I found in my journey left is that it is hard because I think we all know that, you know, what we're fighting for is righteous, right? That guaranteeing everyone in this country to have health care uh, you know, and fighting for Medicare for all is righteous, you know, especially as we sit in a pandemic, you know, fighting for a Green New Deal and saving our planet uh, during the climate crisis is righteous. But so many people, you know, there's this kind of this fear mongering that the establishment uses, you know, to anyone who dares to fight for anything better or to, you know, to challenge the status quo or to, you know, fight for these basic human rights. And so I think, uh, you know, building these coalitions in places like New Hampshire, where you are, Carlos, I think that is so important as this, you know, progressive movement continues to grow and kind of fight back against this corporate power that has a stranglehold, uh, you know, over our government and, and both corporate parties. So I agree with you. I think the DNC has too much power. And my thought and idea is that for next election, whenever there's somebody, a progressive running for office, we will be prepared. We, they, don't, they won't have to do in the state of New Hampshire what other candidates have had to do, which is build the movement from the bottom up 
when the establishment is fully ready there already to support whoever the establishment candidate is. So my thought is that, you know, that we, we will have a playing field. And so I agree with you. I think that DNC has too much power um, and is everything I'm trying to do here in the state to try to change it within. I know there are people that are trying to change it from the outside, um, such as yourself, you know, and I respect that. And I think that's great. I think it's going to require both strategies to put force and and pressure and to change everything that has been happening in this country for years. This is not something that just started happening. This has been this power that the DNC has has been forged for about a hundred years now. So for us that are just starting to get involved and try to change things, you know, it's going to take time for us to to change from the outside and from the inside everything that is happening in the DNC. And it starts by electing people, new leadership, new people, new faces that um, I hopefully am representing. And so um, I'm hopefully hoping to encourage as many people to rise up and challenge as many positions as possible. Nobody, there should be term limits in Congress. There should be even term limits within the DNC. Nobody should have a lifetime appointment or uh, position within the party um, where they can control and say how elections are ran um, and primaries are dictated. I mean, we know Bernie Sanders won the majority of the early states and Joe Biden wins one state and all of a sudden he's the nominee. And it's like, this is why the American American people feel that our democracy isn't working and that it's not worth voting in because they feel it's already decided. So part of that is because the primary system that we have set up. So if we can change that, I think um, we'll start restoring the faith in our system um, and how people feel about our democracy. Yeah, that's well said, Carlos. And, and I couldn't agree with you more that it, it is a two tiered strategy that, you know, I support people like AOC and people like Ilhan Omar and people like you, uh, you know, at the state level who are, you know, trying to change uh, the party from within and fighting to change the party from within. But I also think, you know, uh, that we need more than that, you know, that we also need to fight to apply pressure from the outside because I think the DNC has gotten so comfortable. You know, they, they have gotten so much power like you just alluded to and that you know corporate democrats have kind of they've mastered this this strategy of kind of you know telling people that they're for the people when in reality they govern for their corporate donors right and so you know they'll, they'll go on cnn and they'll say healthcare is a human right but they won't fight for medicare for all the policy to make healthcare a human right or they'll say that climate change is real you know, but they won't fight for a Green New Deal to actually do something about it. You know, they'll say Black Lives Matter, but they won't fight to defund police and, and shift resources in, in, into black and brown communities. So, you know, for a long time, the, the, these corporate Democrats have kind of used lip service and, you know, platitudes. Um, but we're at a moment like where platitudes aren't enough. You know, lip service isn't enough. Platitudes aren't going to stop the, 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 the climate crisis. Platitudes aren't going to stop the racial injustice crisis. Platitudes aren't going to stop, you know, the economic inequality crisis. Uh, you know, platitudes aren't going to stop the racial injustice crisis. So we've got all these serious systemic problems. And, you know, while Republicans are, are doing nothing, you've got corporate Democrats who then just come in kind of say that, you know, and feed platitudes and, and provide lip service. But we're at a moment in history where like, that's not enough. And so like, if we don't fight for real change and policies to heal 
all of this inequality and injustice, things are going to keep getting worse. And so that's why activists like me are, 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 are having to agitate and be disruptive to let people know that like we can't continue on this path. Like it is time for the Democrat Democratic Party to put up or shut up. I agree. I mean, I, I I've been on a similar path and I've gotten my fair share of wrath and isolationism in the state, but I'm one of those people that I'm not afraid to create my own circle if need be. Um, I've I've survived this climate political climax before. And so I'm very well prepared and experienced to do it again. Um, but I do believe, you know, as a Puerto Rican, I have seen what this political climax is creating. Yep. Um, you know, oftentimes people say, you know, well, Democrats are for Puerto Rico and Republicans are not. Democrats are just as responsible for what's happening in Puerto Rico as anybody else. Um, and that's something that I feel strongly about. The, the first appointment of a governor in the state, in, in, in I almost said the state of Puerto Rico, in the, in, in the <laughs> island of Puerto Rico, um, was appointed by a Democrat. Um, and that's col colonialism right there. So um, they didn't allow Puerto Ricans to choose their, their own governor. And they actually appointed a Democrat, as a matter of fact. And while I think Luis Munoz Marin did a lot of great things for the island, um, my grandfather used to tell me the story about the first social program that was passed in the island, which was to provide free shoes to farmers because they were like getting cuts and infections and like having to visit hospitals a lot. And they saw that as a need in the island. And my grandfather receiving his pair, first pair of, of sandals. And he was like so grateful for that. But I, at the same time, this is what Democrats are known for. Um, when I say Democrats, I mean the 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 executive party, um, they, they'll throw a, a few little bones and they'll do platitudes, but they won't actually put action. And, and a perfect action for Puerto Rico would have been, okay, let Puerto Rico decide its own governor, let them have an election, let them hold their own democracy and choose their future and what kind of place they want to be in, what kind of society. Um, that would have been a lot better and say, hey, Puerto Rico, here's the money. Um, we want you to invest in your island yourself, not telling Puerto Rico what to do. So again, here we have a perfect example of what happened about a hundred and so years ago in Puerto Rico um, and Democrats were in charge. So to me, I don't think that the future is gonna change much for Puerto Rico, even though there's a lot of uh, talking and, and all kinds of smoke going on on social media about what should happen in Puerto Rico. But again, Democrats, you know, unfortunately have let us down before. So this is why I'm involved um, because I've always been the type of person that I'm like, okay, if I want to see something, I have to do it myself um, and hopefully empower others to follow on their dreams and goals and, and things that they want to see change. You know, just like I don't have a solution for all problems. I also think that, um, you know, other people's might be better suited for solving some of the problems we have. So that's why I'm all about encouraging others to get involved and run for office and stand up and speak up against the party whenever they're wrong. And I don't think the party is immune to criticism. I think that's a healthy thing. So when they have pushback, you know, that they don't like their candidates being criticized or whatever that may be, I was like, well, first of all, I always make the point, you're okay with me being criticized. And two, um, you know, criticism is good. That's how we grow. That's how we become better as people. This is how we become better as a party. Um, so I'm all for it. Um, unfortunately, we're at a period in time in politics where the party thinks that they're untouchable and where they think our criticism is not worth it. Um, but I'm about to prove them wrong. And so 
I'm encouraging everybody who's listening, anybody who's involved in politics, do not stop criticizing, no matter how much pushback you get. Um, this is how we're going to, how we change our parties, how we're going to change our country. Unfortunately, these two parties have way too much control and too much power on how this country behaves, on this, how this, what kind of policies we implement. So our criticism and our actions is the only thing we have right now that is going to really lead to any amount of change. Unless there's a huge uprise where the whole entire country just says enough is enough and everybody protests, doesn't go to work, doesn't go to stores and buy out of corporation, corporate stores, nothing is going to really change. So I think, um, and I, some people may disagree with me on this, but I really do think the next best option is we have to infiltrate the castle. We have to uh, take every position possible that we can and from the outside, hey, tear down the walls um, brick by brick. Um, so I think that's the best strategy. And this is how we all can work together um, to make sure that, you know, we can save our democracy. And I sometimes think we might be late. So hopefully that thought is wrong um, because these people in power are very entrenched. I see how, for example, one of my biggest heroes in politics somebody that I admire that has changed my mind uh, 360 degrees. Um, that's Senator Nina Turner. Um, she, hey, hello, I've somebody. Had, yeah, I've had a couple of conversations with her and she's just so inspiring and just everything she says makes a lot of sense. But I see, as a, I see her as a very powerful woman of color, yet the party has failed to lift her up. The party has failed to use her, to like use her leadership, to put her in a position of power where we can, you know, embrace that side of our country and say, you know what, progressives, you have a seat at the table. And I think that's a missed opportunity. So that's a perfect example of how threatened by us the party is and how much in power they are that they just don't even see what's beneficial for them. So from a strategical standpoint, I think it's such a missed opportunity. Um, if I had anything to say in the party, Senator Nina Turner would have been the first person I had approached to have a seat at the table, just because, first of all, I think the future is young and it belongs to the young people of our country. And I think she speaks to all of us that are under 40 um, and maybe over 42 that feel young at heart. Um, and I, I just think it's, it's terrible. It's a terrible mistake. And that's a sign to me that maybe it might be a little too late for the party to change its way. And, you know, maybe what you guys are doing, starting something new is the best way forward. Um, I'll continue to fight as much as I can from the inside. But that was the first sign to me that, wow, here's a woman that is so powerful, has a phenomenal story, has inspired people of color, Latinos, gay people. I mean, Progressives, independent yeah, progressives, voters, independent voters, even yeah, working class Republicans. <laughs> I know yes. that love Nina. Yeah, yeah, I know some too in my district that they just hear her name, and I'm like, at first I used to do a double take. I'm like, you like Tina, Nina, and you're a Republican, and they're like, yeah, I just love her power. I love her energy and the way she speaks about American values and the struggle as of being an American. Yeah. Uh, a working American. And I just think it's such a missed opportunity. It just shows how to how out of touch our party is with just the ground and what's happening here. And um, it's a struggle that I've been fighting for 15 years now. So 
No, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I had Nina on the podcast a few weeks ago and just, I mean, I could have listened to her all day. Uh, (laughs) You know, the thing about Nina is, you know, she's fighting for, she fights for justice, you know, justice for the poor, justice for the working class, uh, justice for communities of color and justice for our planet. Uh, And the thing about the DNC uh, and the more corporate Democrats is they're fighting to maintain the status quo and they're fighting for their corporate donors, you know, and that's just, you know, that, it took me a long time to figure that out. You know, I was a Democrat for 18 years before I finally woke up and was like, you know, I, I did a lot of research too. I mean, everyone can go and, and look and see, you know, who funds these candidates and anyone who goes and does the research will learn that corporations and billionaires give about half their money to the Republican Party and the other half their money to the Democratic Party and to corporate Democrats. And politicians are a walking billboard. They are. are. And and it's because whoever wins the election, you know, every four years for president and two years for Congress, the way these giant corporations and Wall Street looks at it is like, well, we win every time because we've hedged our bets and we've gone in, you know, we've we've given money to both parties. So they're going to, whichever party is in power, it's going to serve us and, and, and serve the ruling class and serve their corporate donors. And so that's kind of the place that we are. And I, and I just think that, you know, the people are waking up to it and, and no amount of, you know, Obama sedated us. I voted for him twice, but he sedated us with platitudes of hope and change for eight years. And meanwhile, 11 million people lost their homes during the Obama presidency. You know, working class people, income inequality, it grew under the Obama presidency. And yes, it's also growing under the Trump presidency, but but this kind of neoliberal corporatism that they kind of try to dress up and make it sound better with fancy words and phrases, you know, that is the kind of politics that enabled and emboldened this neo-fascism that's rising in the Republican Party. And, and, uh, and what, what emboldened Donald Trump to rise to power? Because the people got so desperate. And you can look at the numbers in 2016, those o- voters who went from Obama to Trump, you know, the Obama-Trump voters. And a lot of people who are just, you know, they think politics is what CNN or MSNBC tells them. And they don't realize that, like, there's a host of Americans. There's millions of Americans out there, working-class Americans, who are so disenfranchised. They're so they're struggling, just trying to make ends meet. So this con man comes along and promises them the world and, and, and basically lies. You know, he's not a real populist like Bernie Sanders was. Trump was always a phony, fake, fraudulent populist. But Trump lied to them and was like, yeah, I'll bring the jobs back. And yeah, you know, health care for everyone. That's my favorite lie Trump ever told. He promised everyone that he'd give them health care, which we now know is a total lie. But the point is, and I think what a lot of people missed in 2016, and the Democratic Party is still not getting, is that the reason these voters went from Obama to Trump is because they were desperate. And they just, they were so desperate that they voted for a con man. And, and if you look and see, like, 100 million people don't vote every presidential cycle. And I used to think they didn't vote because they were lazy or because, you know, and yes, some of it's voter suppression, but the main reason they don't vote is because they don't feel like either party is talking to them and they don't and they don't feel like either party is fighting for them. And they're absolutely right because both corporate parties are fighting for the their corporate donors and the ruling class. So if you want to win an election, you know, you've got to empower the people. You've got to make the people's votes matter. It's not our job as, as activists to go earn votes for Biden. It's Biden's job to go out there and earn votes for himself. 
It's the whole point of having a campaign. And I just, I think this, the, the corporate Democrats, they act so entitled. And so like, they just act like they're, these votes are owed to them. And, 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 and just being a little bit less worse than Trump, everyone should just go out and vote for them, even though Biden's not giving them anything to vote for to improve their material conditions. So it's rather frustrating when you wake up and you see it and you just see kind of the complicity of both parties, and then they go and try to shame and blame the voters, the very voters they're taking for granted and not actually giving any policy to win over. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I agree 100%. You know, I, I kept thinking, I felt proud what I did during the primary season, but at the same time, I felt guilty that so many candidates took New Hampshire very seriously, but at the same time, people across the country didn't feel that these candidates were taking them seriously. And I felt like, wow, this is so unfair. I'm like, these candidates should be able to travel to every community, talk to them directly and be held accountable, which is what I was doing, holding these candidates accountable as they visited my city. Let's back up because I don't think all my listeners know this. So Carlos actually got to host almost all of the Democratic presidential candidates at his home in New Hampshire uh, during the primary last year. Carlos, I got to ask you, how did you manage to get... Bernie Sanders, Andrew Yang, Elizabeth Warren, you know, how did you manage to get all of these, you know, candidates running for the highest office in the world? How'd you manage to get them all at your home uh, in Laconia County in New Hampshire? Well, um, two things. Um, I'm very determined and I'm very like go-getter. I, I, my goal was to put my city on the map. Um, I live in a very rural community, very red district. Actually, it's the reddest district in all of New Hampshire. And I always felt that the reason this district voted red was because Republicans came here and like Donald Trump visited here. Mike Pence was just here a week ago and my community felt heard. And so I felt that the same strategy needed to be held on the Democrat side, that our candidates needed to come here and listen to the suffering and the struggle of the people in my district and what we're going through. Cause it's not enough for me to hear it. They need to hear it and they need to understand how their policies would, would, would affect us. Um, and so I just went on a journey of talking to the candidates one by one. So as they were visiting New Hampshire, I would do the line like everybody else. And I would finally get to the point where you're in the audience listening to the candidate in some big city in New Hampshire. And at one point, I would make a connection with the candidate. And I would introduce myself first as one of the youngest elected official in 2007 in our state and as the chairman of the Laconia City Democrats. And all of a sudden, their heads would be turning. And they're like, how come I've never heard about you? And then I would tell them my story. And they'd be captivated and my struggle to come here and everything that I've gone through and accomplished. And they're all of a sudden, they're like, well, yeah, sure. Talk to my staff. Let's make this happen. Let's go to your city. And so that's how things would get started. But I have to give credit to two people that were tremendous with me. And one, you might be like, wow, that's an unlikely ally that I would think of possibly. But the first one was Andrew Yang. Um, he visited our city more than anybody else, and he made sure that we were put on the map. And of course, I knew Andrew Yang before Andrew Yang was this guy that you guys know, the math guy on, on social media or on CNN. Um, so I started hosting events for him, and he was very grateful about it And when the establishment was at all costs avoiding him. So that was number one. And then the second person was Tulsi Gabbard, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. Um, we had a, a 
interesting connection. One is the fact that we're both islanders. And two, I was very interested as a LGBTQ rights activist, approaching her myself and talking to her one-on-one about her past. And I wanted to confront her on that. And I went, of course, as a gay man, I went there. You might as well see me with a flag, you know, like marching yeah. towards her. Hell yeah. And that was that was the attitude I was going at it with. Um, and she invited me to her SUV where we would have a one-on-one conversation about this. And she would tell me her story and she wanted to hear mine. And I was actually quite touched um, by everything she had to say. And we develop a interesting friendship. Um, I call her a sister. She she calls me a brother and we're constantly, you know, in communication. Um, but I think that that conversation shows how we as Americans can come together for the common good, how we can come from different backgrounds and accomplish good things in our country. So to me, I was very proud that even though at first my attitude was like, I'm going to confront her and tell her how terrible, you know, her being anti-gay was. And then I was surprised when I heard her story, um, you know, how much she had grown and how much she had gone through. And I did my own research. I'm like, I want to find her record as a congresswoman. And I saw how the establishment, and I think that's when I first started waking up and realizing how much damage the establishment was doing to people that were progressives or people that didn't agree with the establishment with her record. Um, I saw how much they were trying to damage her image and who she really was um, until still to this day is a war on social media where there are people that you cannot mention Tulsi Gabbard. And there are things that her and I don't agree at all on, um, you know, such as their, how we viewed Donald Trump or for example, the Middle East, there are things on the Middle East that I don't agree with, but in general, she's been a pretty decent progressive in Congress. And so I was just shocked how much I learned through her and how much the establishment was doing behind the scenes to damage anybody that was willing to stand up to them. And that's when I realized, oh my God, like I've been part of this problem. I've been enabling the party to, to do these things. And whether they want to say it's intentionally or unintentionally, I don't care. The damage has been done. And there are people that will never be able to stand up back in politics because of what they've done. And so I immediately felt just like I was disgusted. I, I, I really, I remember writing letters to a couple of people in the party and like just being angry that they had used me and other progressives to hurt these people that have been fighting for good cause, such as stopping senseless wars in the Middle East or um, I can't think of other things on top of my head, but those are like the main ones are using Russia as a, you know, we're isolating Russia as we speak. like we're creating another North Korea. Like we don't need that in this world. Um, Russians have every right to exist as much as we do. And I think we should be finding ways going forward on how to work with them, like to create a better world and instead of creating this animosity and using them for political points. Um, and so I, I realized I was quickly jump started into the national politics through them. Um, unintentionally, we just happened to be involved with each other and, that experience alone, I'm grateful for because it, it's really what woke me up. I wouldn't have hosted Bernie Sanders or been involved with Bernie Sanders if it wasn't for Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard opening my mind as to, one, the potential I had in the state to make change, and two, to the fact that how much damage the state is doing. So, A couple things that 
it's so fascinating to hear to hear your perspective because it's it's the thing I've learned is is very similar to you is the the establishment will demonize or you know challenge anyone who dares to kind of fight back or fight against the status quo. You know, the reason they didn't like Tulsi is because she is very anti-war. And, you know, one of the big uh, donors to the Democratic Party and the Republican Party is the defense industry. And unfortunately, the, the reason we're fighting all of these wars, these endless wars, is because they're profitable. It's just really that simple. And, and that's why we don't bring our troops home, because these wars make money for the oligarchy. It's sad. It's it's terrifying. But, you know, the moment someone who's brave enough like Tulsi to basically stand up to the military industrial complex, the party, the corporate media, the billionaire class will do anything to to to, you know, badmouth them and attack them and demonize them because they're essentially kind of calling out the 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 corruption they're calling out the grift they're calling out you know Tulsi called out the fact that yeah we're profiting off of these wars and it's time to end them and and they don't want that they don't want to change the status quo they want to keep profiting off of these wars right and then you have someone like Bernie Sanders who challenges the you know the for-profit predatory healthcare system and says that healthcare is a human right and every American uh, deserves to have guaranteed healthcare regardless of you know, socioeconomic background. And what is that challenge? That challenges the giant insurance companies and big pharma. Well, guess what? The giant insurance companies and big pharma are one of the biggest donors to the Democratic Party. And so you know, any kind of bold progressive change that we're fighting for, it's, we're in a moment with such massive levels of inequality is like, yeah, it's time for like these corporations and the rich to like pay a little more and put the nation on their back because the working class has been carrying this nation on, the, on its back for the last 40, 50 years, you know, for the last half century. And ever since the, you know, the New Deal and FDR period, corporations have just been fighting against labor unions and against the working class. And, and what it's created is the highest levels of wealth inequality in human history. And so it's time for brave, bold people to fight back. And unfortunately, when they do, uh, like you learned in the primary and like a lot of us learned, you know, the main candidates who were challenging the status quo were Tulsi, Bernie and Andrew Yang. So it's no surprise to me that the Democratic Party would push back against that. Um, I want to ask you, though, since you got to meet everyone, uh, who did you endorse and why after you got to hear, you know, every candidate? Um. Great point. So, I, I mean, I was torn for a while. I was bouncing back between Andrew Yang, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders. And I felt like Elizabeth Warren, I know some of my friends might get offended by this, but she was like, I felt like she was my compromise. Like, uh, she was a woman. She was progressive enough. Um, but then I saw, I, since I was awakening, awakening, having an awakening politically, I realized that I was still stuck in that Hillary Clinton mentality where um, we needed to put gender before policy or anything else. And so I was like, you know, I have to be honest with myself. Who do I truly like? Who do I, who inspires me? Who wants to, who makes me want to be a better human being and like fight like hell for my country? And I got to meet Bernie Sanders um, and I'm very fortunate to say that I had an, uh, a conversation with him in my dining room before he spoke to the crowd out in front of my house. And of course I got to introduce him, which was like a privilege on its own. Um, 
but I had a conversation with him and I remember this was very meaningful to me. So I, they walk him into my house. He's eating his lunch in my dining room and his staff goes, he wants to meet the owner of the house. And I was like, yeah, of course. So I walk over there and I was like, hello, Senator. And he's like, Oh, call me Bernie. And I was like, hi, uh, how is things? And, you know, I was just trying to make small talk because I wanted him to be able to eat his lunch because I knew he had a crowd that was hungry to see him. And he goes, so tell me what's on your mind. And I said to him, Puerto Rico. And he goes, you know, I was in Puerto Rico and he told me the story about him and Carmen Yulín when they first met and how feisty and like powerful and just a, a phenomenal woman and leader she was, she is. And, um, I said to him, I know she inspires me too. Like her strength is just unbelievable. I could not imagine waking up and seeing so many Puerto Ricans dead. And as a leader, you know, that's your responsibility to like lift your, your island up, your, your area. And she just did it with so much grace and humility. And, you know, I, I don't know what I would have done. And so he said, well, what touched me the most is the fact how brutalized Puerto Rico was. And at the time I had a very pro-statehood mindset. And it wasn't until I talked to him that I learned how to value my own homeland. Um, and I know that's sad to say, but like he woke me up even more. And he said, so how do you feel about statehood? And I said, well, you know, half of my family loves it and half of my family wants a country. And he said, well, until Puerto Rico is forgiven, until Puerto Rico, the Jones Act is repealed, Puerto Rico needs to be respected. Puerto Rico needs to be lifted. Puerto Rico needs to be like given its place in the world. And then titles. Um, and that's what I want for Puerto Rico. And when he said that, it, it like, he talked about Puerto Rico in a way that it was more Puerto Rican than I could ever talk about Puerto Rico. I was like, holy, it made me, it made me actually question how good of a Puerto Rican I've been for Puerto Rico. And I always love a candidate that makes me think, that makes me a better human being that makes me value myself and others more. And I was like, wow, I hated this guy in 2016. I thought this guy was evil. I thought, and I, that's when I realized even more how much the establishment, the propaganda had just gotten into me. Yep. Me too. And I was like, I can't believe how much I like what he's saying. And even at the time when I was hosting him, I kind of had like a conflict in me. And I still gave really nice words to introducing him to the crowd. I still wasn't sold 100%, but he had gotten to me at that point. And so I was lucky enough that a friend of mine who has, is somebody has always taken me under my wing, um, Mo Baxley, who is a huge LGBTQ rights leader here in the state of New Hampshire. She was a state representative, one of the first lesbian state representatives in our state. She was the reason why we have marriage equality along with some other LGBTQ rights leaders. And I've always followed her path. And when she was on the Bernie campaign, I was kind of disappointed at first. I was like, ah, I wanted to be on the same team as you. Her and I were co-chairs of LGBTQ for Obama. And so I admired her so much. She came to me to my porch a month afterwards and she goes, hey, how are you feeling, buddy? And I was like, I'm feeling a lot of pressure. Like, I don't know who I want to endorse and who I want to go for. And it's starting to get to me. Because for the first time in my life, I just don't know. I like so many and I have so many conflicting opinions and ideas within me, partially because of the party. And she goes, I want you to have breakfast with somebody, a friend of mine. 
and I think you're going to like her. And then make your decision afterwards. And I said, okay, you've never misled me, so why not? Sure, let's do this. And she goes, I think you're really going to like her. And I said, okay. And so it was basically like a blind date, it was, even though it was not a blind date. Um, she said, so you're going to meet me at the Manchester Airport Diner, and you're going to meet Senator Nina Turner. And when she said that, I was like, wow, I, I love Senator Nina Turner. I, I followed her for a while. Like, I, I think she's amazing. And I can't believe I'm about to have breakfast with her. And at first I thought it was like a typical New Hampshire breakfast where there's like a couple of high figure politicians and then a couple of other influential activists on the table. So I was prepared to just be like having a one second conversation, but I wanted it to be meaningful and I wanted it to be about Puerto Rico. And so I went to that breakfast and I look around and it's just Senator Nina Turner and one of her, their staff, Mo and myself. And I'm like, looking at Mel, I was like, anybody else joining us? And she goes, no, just us. I was like, wow, like, this is insane. I'm about to have a full on breakfast conversation one-on-one -on -one with somebody that I admire that has had so much of an impact in my life. I don't think she even realizes still to this day, even though we've talked a couple of times, how much of an impact she has on young people, especially like myself that grew up poor, homeless, LGBTQ of color, like, so I expressed all of that to her during that breakfast. And she goes, tell me, can you, are you on our team or not? And I couldn't say no to her. I, I just, <laughs> I was so inspired. Nobody can say no to Nina. And my friend Mo looked at me and she's, she's giving me the look, don't promise something you're not going to follow through on. Cause she wants me to be an amazing leader. She wants me to be that politician that she knows I can be. Make sure this is truly what you want. And even though she's already had worked on me really hard to join the Bernie campaign, um, I was just so moved and inspired that I just couldn't say no. And then Carmen Yulin had just joined the Bernie uh, wagon too. So I was like, you know, this is the right time. Uh, this campaign has, had, has moved me so much, has changed me so much for good. Um, and has given me a new opportunity. Bernie Sanders always, every time he came to our city and he came here about three times, always lifted my campaign, always lifted my name and make sure that people knew like here, you have a chance to do what you preach, to put your money where your mouth is. Like you're able to put a young leader who has proven himself, who is a minority, who has changed his community for good. Here you have an opportunity to do everything you say the American dream is all about. Here you have an opportunity to do that. And he always put me front and center every single time he spoke here in the city. He realized he used his privilege and power to lift up a minority. And to me, that was something that I was always grateful for. So um, I just couldn't say no. I was like, this is so me. This is, I love the Bernie family. Like every one of my friends are in the team. Like the policies are exactly what I believe in. I just couldn't say no. So I said yes without even hesitation. Senator Nina goes, okay, then let's get to work. I have an event in about an hour. You want to come with me? And I was like, absolutely. I'm canceling the rest of my day. We're traveling together. So we went to Manchester to talk to young people about Bernie Sanders. And then before I knew it, um, I became a surrogate for Bernie Sanders in the state. Um, 
And of course, it did get a lot of media attention. And I definitely got a lot of negative emails from people in the establishment. I definitely got the cold shoulder from people that were not endorsing Bernie Sanders that felt that I betrayed them or I betrayed whatever they thought I'd stood for, um, which it was obviously not the case because I've always been very clear, very upfront and very blunt about where I stand on things, whether they were good or bad. Um, and so, yeah, I, I made a, a big enemy in the party who still to this day uh, here in New Hampshire politics follows my tweets very closely. And she's always there to make sure that to criticize me and leverage whatever power she has to make my life miserable. But you know what? I always say I, I, a good character always good, needs a good villain. So I'm fine with it. I think she just empowers me even more to stand up and speak up truth um, and to keep fighting. And it shows me how much work we have to do. So um, New Hampshire politics can be very dirty, but it's it's definitely Senator Nina Turner was definitely the, she sealed the deal for me for Bernie Sanders. No, you know, Paul, I have a lot of people too that criticize me on, on a daily basis because I am a very outspoken uh, activist. But at the end of the day, politics is about fighting for what you believe in. And it's about fighting for your values and, and fighting for policies that are going to improve this nation. And, and that's really all the progressive movement is doing. You know, that's what Bernie Sanders' campaign was doing. He was fighting for, he is fighting for poor and working class people. He's fighting for our planet. And the fact that, that, that liberals and, you know, centrists and corporatists get so mad at progressives for fighting for, you know, the poor, the working class, communities of color in our planet, I think that says a lot more about them than it says about us. And, you know, I took a very similar journey to you, too. I actually voted for Bernie Sanders in the 2016 primary. You know, I could feel that energy when, in those debates between him and Hillary, even in the 2016 primary, even though I wasn't like as progressive or, you know, I wasn't a democratic socialist back then. But after, you know, Bernie lost, I got right on the Hillary bandwagon and supported Hillary and made phone calls for Hillary in 2016 and campaigned for Hillary. And, you know, then like my big epiphany was, you know, while everyone thought Hillary lost because of, you know, all these excuses they made up, you know, that it was Russia or it was, you know, it was, uh, it, it was Bernie or it was Susan Sarandon, like liberals and kind of these corporatist Democrats, they blamed everyone else for losing in 2016 except themselves. You know what I'm saying? And like Hillary's entire campaign was anti-Trump. It was Trump bad, Trump bad, Trump bad, Trump bad. And my big epiphany, you know, after that election and in the last few years is like, it is not enough, even though, yes, it is true, Trump is bad, but Trump bad is not a policy position that's going to improve anyone's life. You know, Trump saying Trump is bad isn't going to put food on anyone's table. You know, saying Trump is bad over and over and over again isn't going to stop the climate crisis. Saying Trump is bad isn't going to do anything for the 92 million people who are uninsured or underinsured. You know what I'm saying? Saying Trump is bad is not going to stop the racial injustice crisis or the economic inequality crisis. You actually have to have bold, progressive policies to do anything about those things. So when I saw that, like, here we are, you know, Hillary lost because of Hillary Clinton. 
Hillary lost because she didn't campaign in three of the most important swing states. Hillary lost because she took voters for granted. It's not third party voters' fault that they didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. It's Hillary Clinton's fault that she didn't go out and earn their vote. This idea that it is the voters who are responsible for a candidate losing an election is gaslighting and propaganda. Voters don't lose elections. Candidates like Hillary Clinton, who take voters for granted, lose elections. And so when I realized that like, it's not enough to just be the anti-Trump party, and it's not enough to just run against Trump, you have to actually fight for something. The way to beat Trump and the way to vote him out is by offering the American people something better, right? And something better is Medicare for all. Something better is a Green New Deal. You know, something better is universal basic income. The problem is that Joe Biden isn't listening and the DNC isn't listening and corporate Democrats aren't listening. And they think that they can run the same playbook they ran in 2016, right? That Hillary ran that worked out so great for Hillary. Um, just kidding, Hillary Clinton's not president. You know, they think they can run that same playbook even though it failed, you know? And, and I just... It, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me until you realize their goal, it, you know, beating Donald Trump is secondary. Their goal is to maintain the status quo and to, and to keep and to maintain all their corporate donors. And they already accomplished that when they beat Bernie in the primary. So like, that's why they're not supporting these progressive policies. That's why they're pandering to Republicans because they, they don't wanna give up anything. Like they don't wanna give us more than a little tiny crumb even though we have massive levels of inequality and injustice, and the people need these policies, you know, to, to, to continue on and, and to have a dignified life. Um, so I just, I just wanna get your thoughts on like, what, you know, do you think that, it, I think that if this is the most important election in history, then Joe Biden gotta go, ought to go out there and earn people's votes and, and support something like Medicare for All or a Green New Deal. Like that's how you earn people's vote. Like, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I agree. I've gone through the same struggle that a lot of progressives have gone through. Do I vote for Joe or not? You know, and I have made sure that I don't use my social media to promote anybody right now at the presidential level, just because I don't feel anybody has earned that from me, including when Joe Biden came here to my city. Um, I think he's very deftone when it comes to what the people are actually asking him to do. Um, but that said, you know, perfect example. I, I always go back to Puerto Rico because this is a perfect example of how just blind these candidates are. You know, Donald Trump is giving Puerto Rico $3 billion right now, a month before election. How long has he been president? How long has he had the opportunity to help Puerto Rico? Four years, and he's waiting till now, a month before election to help Puerto Rico. How long have Democrats have been in power and have had the opportunity to help Puerto Rico? Obama had eight years. And now we're talking about statehood. Now we're talking about what we want to do for Puerto Rico. And it's like, it's, it's wrong. It's not okay. And so I believe in the same thing as you that, okay, if you think the Green Party voters are the reason why they lost the election, then why the hell did you not do something about it? Why didn't you earn their vote? Why didn't you put a policy? I mean, because right now I do talk to a lot of friends that are voting Green Party, and I'm like, I'm not voting Green Party, but 
they will tell me, you know, I'm voting Green Party, and, but they don't, they're not really super excited about some of the candidates that they have because they feel that they could have done better. I guess they had some issues during their primaries too. But um, so I tell them, you know, so you're voting based on policy. And I'm like, yes. So we know as a party, as party leaders, what is it that we need to change to captivate that audience to, to right. have those votes? So why aren't we doing it? And it's not, you know, I feel that it's partially the Democrats' fault why the Green New Deal is being demonized by Republicans. There are Republicans in this country that support the Green New Deal, that are that are fully, they, they understand the direction we're heading into as a planet, that we need to do something dramatic in order to change the course of, of, of the planet, the, the, the course, the direction we're heading into. And so moderates in our party have just done everything possible to demonize the Green New Deal and make it into this evil thing. And it's part of the reason why one hasn't passed and two, uh, why it's not even being handled at a national level. So um, again, so we're responsible for all that. And we've had many years to take course of action. So this is why I believe that criticism and challenging these candidates are important. I'm making it my mission that I don't care if it's me or somebody else, we have to challenge every single one of these Democrats. Um, and I am not, even though I am voting for Joe Biden uh, in November, I do not forgive Joe Biden for the lack of policies that he's presenting. Um, and I do plan on holding him accountable if he becomes president. And certainly I will be prepared to hold him accountable in 2024. I believe that what got started in 2020, uh, this primary cycle, it's only the beginning. And we should continue this conversation into mm. 2024 and have candidates prepared and ready to challenge the status quo and run for president. Um, so my goal is let's get rid of Trump and then challenge Bert, uh, Joe Biden or whoever ends up being in charge in 2024 um, and challenging them during the primary cycle and make sure that we as progressives, I think we made a little bit of a mistake. And it's the fact that we were so split up and torn apart on who our candidates should be. And I think the biggest mistake the progressives did was not aligning behind Bernie Sanders. When, especially when moderates started aligning behind Joe Biden, yep. um, I think that was our greatest mistake. And we could have had a much different conversation this time around. Um, so I think we need to own a little bit of that mistake too. That said, um, you know, I, so that's my plan. This is my course of action. I, but I'm not encouraging anybody to vote one way or the other. I think this needs to be on a person by person conscience uh, base. And if I have supporters that are like, you know what, I'm not voting for Joe Biden. I'm like, okay, I understand where you're coming. I respect that. And I completely understand where you're coming from here, where I live in the most conservative district in the state of New Hampshire. It's very important to vote, you know, blue for me. Um, but I, my partner, so this is, this will tell you how I feel and how I look at politics. My partner, which we've been together for 15 years, um, voted for Donald Trump in 2016. And so far he's leaning on voting Donald Trump again this time around. Um, and people ask me, how can you be with him? How is this possible? How is it okay? As a progressive, how are you even okay with this? And I'm like, well, you know, the party has isolated so many people in our country yeah. that I don't blame them. Like I, I, I don't blame him why he believes what he believes about our party. I don't, you know, and part of it is true. Like, why would I want... Why does why why would is 
anybody in the right mind that is not in, in the position that I'm in right now and fighting what I'm fighting would continue this. Like, why would they be okay with it? So, um, I, I get it. I'm trying really hard for him because I think in a red district, it matters. Every vote matters. But at the same time, you know, it's not really my job. Um, one, I'm not a surrogate for Biden. And two, I don't work for Biden. Um, and I'm not Biden. So I think he needs to do a better job at making, at earning these people's votes. Just like I don't expect people to just vote for me. I expect to earn every single vote every single day. So before every podcast that I do, mm. I take a jog down my street in different neighborhoods in my community and in hopes that I meet new people uh, walking and jogging and connecting with them and hopefully hearing their concerns. And I guarantee you, every single day I see a couple of people and new faces and they'll tell me some people are not in agreement with me and they'll tell me exactly what they're thinking. And it makes me a better candidate and uh, it makes me be able to analyze what my community needs. And I don't see Joe Biden doing that. And it really hurts me. And it really, as a Democrat, it infuriates me. You know, I've reached out to the campaign many times and they're always talking about how can we get the Latino vote? And it's like, well, first of all, start by reaching out back to one. Like my phone number Everybody in the party has it. Like, and I'm very visible in the state of New Hampshire in politics. If you're in politics in the state of New Hampshire and you don't know my name, you're not in politics. So, like, reach out to me. Let's talk. Let's do something together in this community. Let's do an outreach. Let's leave, lift the community. Yep. But no, I'm not hearing that. And so that's what infuriates me that, you know, if Candace were trying is one thing, but I don't see it. And so I don't blame people when they say, I'm not voting for him. I can't, you know, so I, I respect I, that. And I understand completely where they're coming from. One thing that just jogged my mind where you're talking is I think that there's a, a lot of more liberal kind of, you know, centrist voters don't understand is that, you know, just because like Hillary, you can win a, a Democratic primary with neoliberal voters that just kind of want to maintain the status quo like Hillary did in 2016 and Biden did in 2020. But as a Democratic nominee, you cannot win a general election if you don't expand your coalition beyond these kind of more neoliberal voters that can get you a Democratic primary. You can't win a, you know, a general if you don't expand and also bring in independent voters, uh, younger voters, uh, and more progressive, you know, leftist voters. And I, I just think there's this entitlement where they think, oh, Hillary won the primary, so like she's gonna win, win the general, and oh, you know, Biden won the won the primary. So like it's a foregone conclusion that he's going to beat Trump. And when you actually look like one of the reasons, the main reason Hillary lost in 2016 is it wasn't third party voters. It was independent voters. Independent voters broke for Trump. And if you look at the polls right now, there's a poll last week or, or excuse me, that just came out this week. Joe Biden is 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 losing now uh, against Trump by 10 points with independent voters. So I think there's, again, you know, building a coalition, the, the number one thing you have to do to build a coalition is to listen. You have to listen. You have to listen to the people. But these corporate Democrats, they don't want to listen to the people. They just want to listen to their corporate donors. And, and that backfired in 2016. And that is why I'm, I, I myself am a little nervous because, you know, look, when you compare kind of the Democrat strategy versus, versus Trump's strategy, they're totally different. You know, Trump is doing everything he can right now to energize and turn out his base, while Biden and the DNC are doing everything they can to depress their base by running away from the progressive policies 
that their voters want, you know? And if you just step back and look at it, like Republicans never moderate their message to appeal to Democrats. They run on a, on a far right agenda to excite their base. Yet Democrats always moderate their message to appeal to Republicans. They run away from the progressive policies and it deflates their base. That is exactly why Hillary Clinton lost. And if Joe Biden can't beat Trump, I mean, this is like the most slam dunk election in history. He should be up by 20 points right now. And if he can't beat him, that's why. Because he didn't give people anything to vote for beyond, you know, Trump is bad, so vote for me. And, and I went and pulled up some numbers just to kind of see how the, the DNC strategy, if it's working for them. And you got to hear me out here. The DNC has only elected two presidents in the last 40 years. And Democrats have only controlled the House for six of the last 24 years. Yet they continue to employ the same losing strategy, take progressive voters for granted, and pander to Republican voters who, checks notes, vote for Republicans. Like, newsflash, America. Republican voters who Joe Biden has been chasing for three months vote for Republicans. And the other concerning thing we have, and the same poll I just mentioned, Joe Biden, after spending four months courting these mythical moderate Republicans, he's only at 5% nationwide with Republican voters. Guess what? In, 20, in 2008, when Obama won, he got 9% of Republican voters. And in 2012, when he, he got reelected, Obama had 6%. So all of this courting progressive, or excuse me, Republican voters has actually only, has gotten Biden nothing, and they've done it at the cost of the, of the, of the independent and uh, you know, progressive and younger voters they could have been focused on by, by, by embracing policies that these voters want. So in my head, it's like, if Democrats lose, it is 100% their fault. Like, they're the ones who are in their own way and they just, they don't wanna listen. They don't wanna get outside of their little neoliberal bubble. I, I mean, I hate to hear those numbers, obviously, but it's the reality we're living in and I'm seeing it every single day. It unfortunately affects my race negatively. And I feel like even though I have nothing to do with how the Joe Biden campaign is ran, you know, unfortunately us progressives sometimes down the ballot pay the price. So, you know, we kind of have to work against the current, um, but we're working really hard to make the message be heard that, you know, I'm not like them. I, I'm my own person and I'm going to fight for my district. Um, I wish we were in a different position. This is why I endorsed Bernie Sanders and I was like such an advocate. I mean, I put everything on the line. I was donating weekly. I was, I lost friends because of it. Um, and I didn't care because I knew that was what was good for Puerto Rico. It was good for us here in mainland. Um, and it's just unfortunate that Democrats, the establishment, the DNC just doesn't realize um, that we're heading down and no return road, you know? So, uh, and unfortunately, I don't know that we'll have another chance if Donald Trump wins again. I, I don't know that we will. So by then, the far right will be so empowered and so entrenched. Uh, you know, we're already seeing it on the roads and the streets. You know, I've gotten more death threats in the past two years than I've ever had in my 15 years in politics um, combined. Uh, and it's just showing um, in red districts, minorities are going to be in danger. Um, 
And I'm not sure that us minorities are going to want to live in this country any longer if this continues, because it's, you know, it's, it's becoming dangerous. Um, you know, sometimes I wonder, you know, not only minorities, you know, we saw the shootings of in schools happening, um, you know, where like Sandy Hook, for example, like, I don't know that we want to send our kids to this kind of environment to schools, um, never mind add COVID-19 to it. And we have a government that is unresponsive and they're okay with sacrificing people. Um, so to me, it's, you know, it's, it's very scary situation. And of course, Puerto Rico's in a position that is so devastating. They lose, they go weeks without power and water at a time. Still, three years after Hurricane Maria. Like, if that happened anywhere in mainland USA, I mean, the outrage nationally would be unbelievable. We're talking about 4 million US citizens going without water or electricity for weeks at a time, rationing food, uh, rationing medication. And I get it, as, an, as a country, there are places in our country that are just as bad that we don't pay attention to. There are people that are rationing their diabetes medication, um, but in Puerto Rico, it's happening to everybody. Like it's not just one person here and there. It's like the whole entire island, no matter what your status is. Um, correct. Yep. What I say in my district, when people say, well, you know, you should be happy. Donald Trump gave you a, a stimulus. And I'm like, you know something? Let me put it in perspective. If we take the corporate bailout that we just did this past spring, and we split it up evenly amongst every American, whether they own a corporation or not. I believe the number I saw on social media and online was $53,000 every American would get. So, I mean, think about that. Like, how much our whole country would change with $53,000 in their pocket. Corporations are still complaining that they can't survive and they need more money. Well, we, they wouldn't be complaining because the American people are known when they have money in their pockets and they pay their bills, they're able to go out and spend it and, and help their communities and lift their communities and, and lift up businesses. So the trickle up economy has been proven to work. And this is why I love Andrew Yang and we've become such good friends and he endorsed me without even hesitation. And like the guy is a genius, but regardless, like he's so right on when it comes to the UBI, like 53,000 dollars in people's pocket is unimaginable obviously that's not even a question right now it's not even a thought in the american public well i was just gonna say like it's it's about corporate control right like people think that like we we live in this society where oh capitalism equals freedom it's actually the opposite because when these corporations own and control our government and control our elected officials 
We have an entire government now that is an arm of Wall Street and an arm of these giant corporations. So they're literally, you know, the they're in the pockets of all of our politicians. So our government basically, it, it's not of by and for the people. It's of by and for the corporations. So these giant corporations have have more money than they need, are more profit have more profits than they ever need. But like you said, if there was more money in the people's pockets, they would do better, but then they couldn't control us, right? That's how they control the working class, you know, by paying them starvation wages. And by, by, by it's like this abusive cycle. And it's if, economic slavery. It is. Saying, and know? if we put money in their pockets, it would empower people. I'm a firm believer in UBI. It would give people more freedom. But again, it's about power and control. And, and that's why I want more people to understand that like this kind of capitalism, this kind of oligarchic government is not freedom. We have all become a slave to these giant corporations. You know, when you have, if you get sick, and you go and you and you get cancer and one of these giant insurance corporations wants to deny your insurance claim all of a sudden now you're $500,000 in medical debt that's not freedom you know what i'm saying so like we are living under corporate rule and that's why we have to break the stranglehold that these corporations and billionaires have over our government it's one thing to start a business and you know work really hard and to go do your thing i'm all for that it's a whole other to literally have our to basically you know bribe our entire government to work for you and to write laws that favor you and to write laws so you don't have to pay your fair share of taxes and write laws to give you complete domination of markets you know it's like our economy isn't free our economy is rigged and it's rigged by these politicians who write laws that favor these corporations and i just think that it's hard for people to see it because they're doused with so much propaganda and i think one of the biggest ones is capitalism equals freedom no 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 not the kind of american capitalism we're seeing right now there is nothing free about living under corporate rule i i agree i mean homelessness is the the way the reason why i started to hate this system that we have in place like i see it every single day i know people that are homeless and there are empty buildings in our communities that we should be investing in the communities to get these people at home i believe i believe in a every human should have a home and like it, it's just they are so greedy that they just don't want to solve these issues i'm convinced that these politicians are paid to not solve issues, to just basically prolong what's happening, to continue what's happening, um, to continue well, they, the powerful to be powerful. Right. And, and they because and they profit off our suffering. They profit yep. off of mass incarceration, right? They profit off of the racial injustice. They profit off economic inequality. Like they are profiting off of all of our suffering. They profit off the endless wars. You know, they profit off of uh, us getting sick and having, to, you know, to, you know, they profit off the food that, you know, it's like they profit off of all of this corruption. And so until we can end the corruption, it's just going to be this vicious cycle of corruption that, that goes on infinitum. And that's, again, why we have to break the duopoly. We have to break the stranglehold that, you know, people that are in power should be representing the people. You know, they should not be representing these corporations and billionaires. Um, and that again, I mean, that to me, like, so when people say that, you know, America is dying because of Donald Trump or America's failing, I quickly say to them, no, like America is not failing because of one corrupt president. America is failing because our entire system is corrupt. 
You know, for 40 plus years, we've had, you know, failed trickle down economics for the working class and bailouts, socialism, corporate welfare, uh, and wealth transfers for the ruling class and these giant corporations. That's the problem. You know, the system is rigged against us. And until we come together and fight to unrig it and fight to put more people like you in office and fight for political parties that aren't beholden to corporate money and, and corporate donors, it's just, you know, I think Joe Biden said it best when he told a room full of rich donors uh, in, in the primary, he kind of slipped and got honest and he said that, you know, don't worry about electing me. Nothing will fundamentally change. I think that is the most honest thing that Joe Biden has ever said. You know, that it doesn't matter whether it's a neo-fascist or a neoliberal corporatist in the White House. Uh, you know, nothing is going to change as long as our government and, our, and both political parties are controlled uh, by corporations and billionaires in Wall Street. I, you said it best. I, I'm at a point that I'm like, you know, I wish we lived, I keep telling myself this, I'm like, I wish we, was, we, we were living in the alternative universe, like at yes. this point, because um, this seems unreal. Like every day yeah. that I wake up, I'm like, I obviously smile and try to live the best life I can for my kids, but it's hard at the end of the night, you know, to put your, I've lost friends because of this political climate. Like my best friend um, who has been swept by, Donald Trump propaganda, like, mm. I just, I've lost people that I care about because of it. I've, you know, and, and, and actually, I have a relative that died because of this political climate. Um, you know, when Hurricane Maria hit and over 3000 Puerto Ricans died, which according to Donald Trump, only 50 something died. Um, but clearly, he doesn't care about Puerto Rico to know how many actually died. Uh, my uncle was one of the people that, that died in the aftermath i went so just mm. to give you a perspective i've gone my parents divorced at the age of 12 and i've been close to both of my parents my whole life so my dad and i have always talked on the phone every single day of my life since they divorced it was a promise he made to me that he would always be connected one way or the other that i would never lose my father when Hurricane Maria hit, I remember talking to him the night before and I thought about it. Oh, it's just another hurricane that's going to hit the island. No big deal. Like, you know, they'll go without water for a couple of days. And I wasn't trying to be unsensitive, but my reality was, okay, I'll still be able to talk to my dad tomorrow. And if he needs something, I'll be there for him. Tomorrow came. And I had heard nothing from my dad. The media was painting the worst picture scenario of what had happened in the island. They were showing videos, pictures. A week went by, I still hadn't heard from my father. A month went by and I still had heard nothing from my father. And I was starting to get really worried. I was like, they're saying all kinds of people are dead in the island. And I'm like, I'm nervous that my father is going to be one of them. So about two and a half months later, I hear from my mother-in-law, I mean, my, sorry, my stepmother, um, she, she was crying and she, her service was terrible. Like I could barely hear her. And she goes, I'm on the side of the road. I finally have cell phone service and I want to let you know your father is not okay. Mm -hmm. And I need to be able to get a hold of you guys, but we have no phone service in the island. We love you guys. And I'm sorry. And Still to this day, I choke up about it because mm. 
nobody should have to go through that. Like that's right. That's just insane in America. Like America should have been there day one after the hurricane yep. with antennas to create service. So to stop the chaos, like to make sure people had food, to make sure people had water. And then I was even more furious two days later when I found out why my father was in the hospital and in ICU. Hmm. Keep in mind, this is two months and a half later. So he has been in the ICU for two and a half months. And when I found out, I like wanted to, like, I just wanted to scream. I wanted to like, I wanted to do something about it. I, I just, and there was nothing I can do. There was no flights into the island. There was nothing, absolutely nothing I could do. There was no mail going into the island. No packages could be sent. Mm. And so I got another call about a week later. Keep in mind, this is all I know. So for a whole entire week, now I'm thinking my dad is about to die. And she tells me, you know, your father is in, I have better service, but there's a spot in the island that they have to drive to on the side of a road by a cliff. I guess there was a cruise ship nearby that was providing cell phone service. And so the only way that they could get this phone service is if they got near enough to the cliff wow. to be able to make calls outside of the island or anywhere. So, of course, they used the one call that they could make to call me. And she's like, your father contracted a bacteria because he drank the water that rats had pissed on. Oh. And so I immediately, my mind is running and I'm thinking to myself, how? How is this happening? How? When did my father felt it was okay to drink that water? Where was that water? Like, I'm thinking a million things in my head, and still I cannot offer them a solution. Mm. And she goes, and we don't know if he's going to be okay because there's no antibiotics in the hospital. This is something, keep in mind, when the Washington Post did the article on me and they were researching this, they were like, Carlos, I don't know if you understand, but this is the most easily cured bacteria in the human body that could ever happen to you. Like, you can go to the hospital, get penicillin. But the hospitals, like, again, it's a series of failures, uh, you know, of government because there's not even antibiotics for people. Oh, my gosh. So here we are, again, the system completely failing. And, right. and, I, and people say, well, how I had friends that got mad at me because I blamed Trump for it. And I was like, this is your colony. This is your yeah. system that you created yeah. and you have failed these people. There's no other way about it there's there's no other answers um so then about six months later i found a friend who could charter a plane to puerto rico and when i got there not only Mm. did i kiss the ground because i was so happy to see my homeland but i cried for like at least 30 minutes like Mm. i was just I mean, the, this was a sorrow that I had never felt. And I've lost relatives that are very close to me that I was depressed about. But I had saw the whole island swiped clean. Like it was flat. There's no trees. Mm. Uh, a childhood tree that I grew up playing around and on climbing um, was gone. I mean, everything was just like complete. It was like an apocalypse had happened. Um, there's no other way to describe it. And so I got even more furious as I was there. And then the other thing is there was no transportation. There was no, so if you wanted gasoline, you could only get it once a week and you would have to make an all day line. And I found out my stepmom was making that line once a week. and was no, had no luck in getting gas. Hmm. 
So imagine doing a line from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. and you still didn't get what you were there for. Um, so that's the reality that she was facing. And here she is. She has a son of her on my half brother, who his name is also Carlos Gabriel, but we call him Gabriel. Um, so she takes care of my half brother, who's an adult, but she he still lives at home. Um, so she's taking care of him and the household and the animal house, the the house, the animals in the house. Well, at the same time, visiting every day at my, my father at the hospital and not knowing whether she's going to have a husband the next day. Hmm. So, and this was a reality, not just for her or thousands of Puerto Ricans. Like right. some people were even worse off that didn't live near the city. They would have to walk miles. And when I'm saying miles is like 15 miles, 10 miles just to get anything. And when I say anything, it could be nothing. Like just to find people and be like, oh, we ran out of supplies or we don't have anything. Um, so that's when I decided I need to get back into politics and I can't allow this to continue to happen. Like, and, and Puerto and Ricans are parties. Americans. Puerto Ricans yeah. are Americans. These are our people. They, these are our people that we, that we have left behind and abandoned. Our government abandoned the Puerto Rican people. It can't happen anymore. When I watch hurricanes hit Florida or Houston, and you see the National Guard get there in two days. And then you don't hear about it in the news ever again. Like it just right. done. It's solved. Yeah. I'm like, Puerto Rico is not that far from Florida. We think of Puerto Rico as some faraway island. You know, our president lied to us. It's literally not that far away. It's a three-hour flight from Boston. It's a half an hour flight from Florida. So I just get so angry that the American public just was okay with this kind of reaction. And then when he shows up to the island, you know, it I was all performance in a photo op and he's throwing paper oh, towels. Absolutely. It was just all like, I had a Republican say ugh, to me, well, he did disgusting. end up going and he did give them stuff and people seem happy. I said, people might've had smiles in their faces because that's all they were getting. Like yeah. they were starved for six, right. seven months. And then finally you get somebody to help you. You're grateful. Like with anything you get, but we know that that wasn't enough. Paper towels, like what? Can yeah. you, what are you going to do with no, paper he towels? He was throwing paper towels at the audience, and but it, it, you know, it, it, throwing paper towels like they were like they were audience members, and he was like the performer for them. I mean, it was like it was circus level stuff. And yeah, it felt to me like when the NBA shoots t-shirts totally. to the crowd, like it, yeah, it's like, and, and like here, like these people are suffering. They need they need help. They need food. They need supplies. They need infrastructure they need resources they need to rebuild puerto rico they don't need a, cl a fascist clown throwing paper towels at them but sadly it reminds me also of what speaker pelosi and chuck schumer did after you know the police uh brutally murdered george floyd you know they they did the they put on kente cloth you know african kente cloth and they kneeled wearing kente yeah. cloth again performance you know, we yeah. have serious systemic problems in America, in Puerto Rico. We need serious systemic solutions. We don't need lip service. We don't need performance. We need our politicians to stop working for the powerful and start working for the people, you know? And to the American public, when they say, you know, why should I care about what's happening in Puerto Rico if I'm not Puerto Rican? I truly believe that when one person's rights are in danger, Yep. everybody's rights are in danger. And I do yep. think that the government is testing how they can get away with this kind of yep. systemic racism everywhere yep. else. 
this country did not get away from racism. They just took a pause and configured how we can. They dressed it up. You know, they dressed it up. You know, it still is racist as ever. Look what we've done at the border. Look at the police brutality. Minority communities are next. Gay communities are next. You know, that's how it's going to happen. This is how. And some people criticize me when I compare Donald Trump to Mussolini or or Hitler. But this is how Hitler started. He didn't he didn't create the regime he created in one night. He did it over time. He convinced his own people that this was the right thing to do. There were so many Germans that just turn, turned a blind eye. And some that at some point, they got to the point that they're like, there's nothing I can do because otherwise my life is next. So, um, you know, that's the same direction we're heading. And I think America's going down a really bad road that, yeah. unfortunately, if you don't read a history book, you're not going to be familiar with. So, And I would agree. I mean, I think Donald Trump is dangerous but i also think that this this narrative the democrats try to spin to absolve themselves and you know the whole trump bad narrative it's like you're not resisting trump when you're voting for his legislation you know well it takes a, a terrible candidate to enable a bad president so for um, sure i mean but they also like they they vote for his you know they gave him more police powers they you know they voted for the patriot act which is more surveillance they voted for his military budget you know democrats just voted yesterday to confirm a trump judge in the senate 98 to 2 you know they're voting for his judges still like you can't resist you know fascism when you're voting for fascism or when you're funding fascism so i i agree trump is dangerous like i don't support trump i don't want anyone to vote for Trump. I've never told anyone to vote for Trump. I just think that the Democrats are so sinister how it's like they're weaponizing the fear of Trump instead of like fighting for policies to to, to beat Trump and move us beyond Trumpism. They're just like trying to say Trump bad, Trump bad, Trump bad. But just getting rid of Trump, you know, which I think actually Joe Biden, well, I don't know. I go back and forth. I used to, th- a month ago, I thought Joe Biden was a sure thing. Now I think it's a coin toss election because the Democrats won't go out and earn votes and they won't go out and energize progressives and independent voters and younger voters. I think if they did that, they would win in a landslide by 20 points, but they want to make it as difficult as possible because again, their, their goal isn't helping the people. Their goal is to cater to their corporate donors. So if you but, only saw the emails that I would send our party <laughs> leaders, you would be like, no, and I'm glad they need to hear from us. They need to hear from us because they're, they're just as, comp- as far as I'm concerned, they are just as complicit, you know? And I just, how is neoliberalism ever going to stop neo-fascism when neoliberalism is this very thing that gave us Donald Trump? And how is it going to stop it when it's voting for, again, voting for its legislation and funding his fascist programs? I just, you know, there's just this disconnect. You know, it's, we don't live in a fairy tale, unfortunately. You know, in a fairy tale, there's like a, a bad guy, you know, a really bad guy, and then the, the good guy, you know, to, to beat the bad guy. We live in a nightmare. Where there's a where there's evil and there's a little there's a little bit less evil. You know, they're both bad guys. And unfortunately, there's a lot of Democrats who still want to just pretend we're like in this fairy tale and the Democratic Party, you know, isn't bought and paid for by the very same oligarchs and giant corporations that the Republican Party is bought for. You know, so there's just this denial. And that's where I get nervous when people start saying, you know, Trump is Hitler. It's like, then you're acting like, well, the Democrats are these saviors and, and they're not doing anything to stop Trump, in my opinion. If they wanted to stop Trump, they'd support Medicare for all. If they wanted to stop Trump, they'd support a Green New Deal. They'd actually work to, this is the most important election in history. 
Joe Biden would be out there earning every single vote and doing everything he possibly could to earn every single vote. And I don't see Joe Biden doing that. I see the DNC running another corporatist campaign. And, you know, when you do that, you have to understand that, you know, elections have consequences. And if you don't want to go earn people's votes, that has consequences. You know, so they went and did this in 2016, wanted to blame everyone else for their failures. I'm sorry, like when a good sports team loses, you know, or a good athlete loses, they don't, you know, blame the refs and blame the fans and blame the court or blame the ball. They, after the loss, they take inventory and they're like, okay, I'm going to train in the off season and I'm going to work to get better. So next time I win. Unfortunately, the DNC and these corporate Democrats, they didn't do that. They didn't take 2016 and be like, okay, we need to get better. We need to listen to the people. We need to listen to independent voters and progressive voters. We need to actually, you know, have policies to earn and win over their votes. They're like, no, it's Russia's fault. It's, you know, it's it's Jill Stein's fault. It's Susan Sarandon as if she has that much power. It's her fault, you know. And now I actually see them blaming activists like me. Like, it's my fault that Joe Biden's not going out there and earning votes, you know. Like, I just see them as playing the victim, not learning from their mistakes. And people that don't learn and grow, you know, this is what happens. They, unfortunately, I see Joe Biden walking into the same trap Hillary walked in in 2016, and it breaks my heart to hear that. And I hope that every, if there's a moderate listening to the podcast, because I know we have some moderate listeners, I hope instead of shaming voters, you know, that are voting their conscience, you go out there and you encourage Joe Biden to win their vote. Encourage yeah, them to I, I agree. support Medicare for all. Encourage them so then they don't vote green. So then they go out and vote for Biden. That's how you get people to the polls. You empower them. You make their votes matter. You don't shame and bully and harass them. I mean, the shame and harassment and bullying that I've seen from corporate Democrats and from the K Hive that finally the Huffington Post called them out yesterday and wrote an article on how toxic the K Hive has been. It's like, that is not how you win elections. It's actually how you lose elections. So um, we're kind of getting near to the end, but uh, this yes. has been such an insightful conversation, Carlos. I want to finally ask you, you know, f- what brings you hope in a time like this with, with so much despair and suffering going, going on around us? Like, where do you find your hope that we can fight to make things better? Um, you know, I used to be in a position where I'm always, I was always lifting people up and like finding ways to cheer them up. Um, do acts of kindness. And now I'm seeing that in my life. I'm seeing people go out of their way on social media to say like, listen, it's going to get better. Like just smile, like keep fighting. You're doing the right thing. Um, Part of the New Hampshire Progressive Coalition, I'm seeing people reach out and be like, I understand in the position you're in and like how much pressure you're under. Like we got you, we got your back. It's those acts of kindness that always gives me hope. Um, And I do know that regardless of American politicians, how terrible they are, and they represent the worst in humanity, I truly believe that. I believe that there are really good American people that are out there, whether they're doing mutual aid or they're going out to protesters and and defending them or standing in front of them to guard Mm -hmm. them against the police or... You know, going to communities where, like, for example, Flint, where they don't have good running water, um, Puerto Rico, where Feed America went there and fed families in different neighborhoods and communities where they really desperately needed. I do believe that that American uh, faith, belief, um, way of being is still alive, and I'm seeing it. Um, 
I see it every day. Should it be our responsibility to do that? No, it should be, you know, we created a government and our government should be able to provide our, the, the necessities that we as a society need. But that said, that's what gives me hope and faith. And every single time I get negative, this is what kind of jump starts me. Is, is, and I'm 31 now. I'm not as young as I was when I first started you're, running. For you're an old timer now. You're an old time, <laughs> 31 year old. You're making this 38 year old feel really old over here. <laughs> uh, I'm officially old um, once I turn 30. But um, <laughs> I see this new generation of like leaders, like, and yes. I think quite a few in my mind right now, like here in the state of New Hampshire. You have Mani Espitia, who's like a Latino state representative, who's like just amazing. Nikki Forty, who is running for state representative, she's disabled and bisexual and running for office. And like, it's so powerful the message she's sending that people with disabilities can also represent us in office, mm-hmm. which is something that we lack of in politics. Then you have Tony LeBranche in New Hampshire too, who's gay, uh, who's French Canadian, who like, is so energized to bring new young people to the fold. And then you have activists like Josie Pinto, Alessandra, so many amazing people across you know the state that just, it gives me hope and, and it shows me I'm not alone. And so if you're, you have a listener out there that you're like, you know, the world is pretty, pretty dark right now. Just be that light that we need. Um, it does not mean, I said this the other day, like be positive and people kind of took it the wrong way. I'm not telling people how to feel or what they should be doing. What I am telling people is to each other, be kind. So if you have other lefties or socialists or Democrats that are within your, your sphere of beliefs, lift each other up. This is all we got right now. Um, you know, our, our, we're spread thin in our communities because the establishment has fought us for so long. And, you know, mm. the elders, as I call it, that were progressives that led the way for us are exhausted. So there's new leaders everywhere. So lift them up. If you're a person that you don't think you can run for office, that's fine. Not everybody has to run for office. You can be the support system. You could be that person that that progressives can call. And I've just been fortunate through social media that I've made some incredible friends. Um, Ryan uh, in Illinois, who is a phenomenal friend who every time I've been another Ryan, by the way, (laughs) um, who every time I've kind of like hit a rock wall and I'm like, I don't know if I should be in politics anymore. Like this is getting to me. And like, I hate seeing people suffer. Hmm. They remind me why I'm doing this. Um, cause we're all human. And so it kind of re-energizes me. So there's some amazing people out there and, you know, that's what gives me hope. I, I think, there's still enough amazing human beings out there that we should not get too caught up on politics, meaning we should always remember that there's more than just politics in this country, that there's more that unites us. And um, we just have to shine a light on it. Um, and we need to find those people in our community and lift them up and keep a light on them. Um, maybe they can't lift, maybe they can't shine the light, the light on themselves. So it's our job to shine it on them and, and, and support them in any way you, we are, just like you are. You go across the country letting all kinds of voices speak up, such as mine, and I appreciate it because I know my race is not a national one, but I do believe that whatever happens to me in this race will dictate the future of progressives in the country. We need mm-hmm. to remember what kind of power New Hampshire holds in, in politics, whether we like it or not. Yep. And I think it's super important as one of the very few progressives left standing in the state of New Hampshire 
that we do not allow the establishment to one shut me down and to um, to stop the movement in general. So I think it's going to be very important for future elections. And how can my listeners uh, support your campaign by chipping in, you know, five bucks or ten bucks? Where can they go to do that? Yeah. So my website is Carlos Cardona, the number four, the letter N, the letter H. Dot com. So Carlos Cardona, the number four, nh.com. My donate link is in there. Um, and of course, you can find me on Twitter at nhcardona603. Um, and, you know, if you can't donate, that's fine. Go uh, like, retweet my message because maybe somebody will see it and be inspired by it. And maybe they can donate. Um, but every donation matters. Um, right now, we've out fundraised all the candidates and we're going to need that in the most reddest district. We need every fund we can to, uh, do mailers. I mean, we have to do it all. We have to pull hail Mary here. So, and I'm confident that we can do it. Um, and of course I do, if I may, there's an event October 19th with Andrew Yang and it's called rule rule America with Carlos Cardona and Andrew Yang. Um, we're going to be posting the links pretty soon by Monday. Um, join us so that you can hear a call from leaders across the country as to why it's important that I win my race. And of course, you will also hear from Andrew Yang uh, as to why he's so, um, why he thinks this race is the most important in our state. So um, so join us on that event. That's going to be great. And it's at 7 p.m. on the 19th of October. So keep an eye out there for that amazing event. Carlos, this is thank you so much for being in this fight, for inspiring me today. Uh, you're just you have so much strength, and uh, I admire. I just admire all that you have overcome, and uh, not only overcome, but you've used your experience and your struggle to then go up and lift up others and help others. And I and I think that's what our journey here is really about: is to you know take all of the things that have happened to us that were tough and use that pain to actually help heal the world. And you're doing that, and I'm so honored to, to know you and be your friend and support your campaign, uh, and uh, wish you the best of luck, and we'll talk soon. Well, thank you for having me. The honor is mine to be able to speak on your show, and thank you to everybody that was listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Carlos Cardona. And uh, before I go, I want to make sure and thank all of our Patreon subscribers for making this podcast possible. And if you want to become a Patreon subscriber, you can go to patreon.com slash proud socialist. I want to thank James Quinn, Juliana Seymour, Susan McGraw-Keeber, Kathleen Alexander, Lisa, Susan Sarandon, Kenny Alooms, Eli Harris Mavis, Troy Hewitt, Sean O'Brien, Mason, Charlie Wilkin, Sean Stubblefield, Stanley Korinsky, William McLaughlin, DJ Comatos, Frank Cardenas, Joyce Yang, Jeremy Leeming, Liz Kirkland, Jeff Bonner, William Holtz, Trent Tobler, Michael Hardy, Molly Secors, Insurgent, Alexandra Orso, Shanna Pearson, Patty Cleary, Walter Hackett, Alan Wood, Russell Whitworth, Ruben Sanchez Jr., Elizabeth Kim, John Lloyd IV, and Eileen O'Farrell. Thank you so much for your donations, and thanks for joining us on another episode of Amped Up with Ryan Knight. Have a great weekend, everyone.